0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Russian government has persecuted several ethnic minority groups over the years, so you may be surprised with efforts by Russia at one time to embrace black people from both African countries and America. Senior writer for The Root, Terrell Germain Starr, will join us later this hour to tell us more about that history. Now, we're talking about Russia today because of the centennial of the Russian Revolution. Coming up, we'll hear about a specific area of Connecticut where Russians settled after fleeing communist rule. Are you a descendant of Russia? Russian immigrants? What are your thoughts on the Russian Revolution of 1917? How do you view the country today? You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. Email live at wmpr.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at live. First, let's learn about what happened in the lead up to the revolution in 1917. Joining us by phone is Ian Frazier, a Smithsonian contributor and author of Travels in Siberia. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, first off, where did you become interested, or when rather, when did you become interested in Russia and the history of this, this nation?
1: Well, it's just uh, something I've been interested in all my life. Uh, when I was really young, uh, I just uh, it was something that fascinated me. Uh, I was six years old when Sputnik went up. And uh, I think uh, my father, uh, I just remember my father taking me out on the front lawn of our house in Hudson, Ohio, and looking up in the sky and seeing this little light go across the sky and, and uh, just imagining this world that's on the other side of the world, that's on the other side of the Iron Curtain, that's just the other side, like the other side of the mirror. Mm. And it's just always fascinated me.
0: When did you first travel there?
1: Well, I went there first in 93, uh, after, you know, things had opened up after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, uh, um, uh, it was just, it was amazing because so many things were preserved from the fifties in the way that they weren't preserved here. You know, that, that Russia had been a little, well, I mean, it had been kind of, uh, mired in the later years of communism and it hadn't really, uh, gotten rid of the old thing. So it was like going back to, to my childhood. Uh, it was really amazing. And the first time, uh, I took a shower with Russian shampoo. It smelled the way Johnson's baby shampoo used to smell because they had copied the old Johnson's baby shampoo. So, I mean, there were a lot of things that were just preserved and it was quite fascinating to see uh, Cold War things just, you know, uh, everywhere.
0: Uh, we're off. Americans are often faulted for not knowing our history, but tell us about uh, the history of Russia back in 1917 and why it was such a turbulent year.
1: Well, Russia had been, it was a place where lots of problems had been left unsolved for centuries, really. And uh, uh, that was when a whole lot of things that had been just simmering kind of came to a boil. And and, um, uh, things like uh, how to divide the land up. The peasants had been freed. The serfs had been freed in 1861, but there had been no disposition really of the land so they were kind of it was kind of almost like you know they the the landowners no longer had responsibility for them uh and yet the serfs didn't ex serfs didn't have land so that had been unsolved forever russia had been uh industrializing uh and it just was a much more. It, it was a society that was trying to modernize, and it had an ancient autocracy, or not ancient, but 300 and some year old autocracy, in the Tsar that was just not well adapted to to what was then modernity. So there were just there were pressures that that um, built up, and and um, there were very ill-advised moves to repress these. Uh, uh, these popular movements, and and things blew up.
0: Meanwhile, uh, there was also uh, involvement in the war, World War One, and before right. that there was defeat. There was a, a war with, between Russia and Japan. Tell us about that and how that all led to uh, this discontent of the people in 1905.
1: Well, yeah, in 19- <coughs> 1905, Russia uh, and Japan went to war over uh territory in the russian far east and um, everybody just assumed that you know nobody really knew how strong japan had become by then as an industrial power itself so russia just didn't expect <clears throat> it was going to be able to uh... uh um, it didn't expect that japan would be as strong as it was and japan beat russia and humiliated russia and russia found itself with very very long lines of communication trying to get to the pacific and and deal with this war and and uh, russia had to um accept peace with japan and so that was in 1905 and everybody was you know concerned about that and it led to a revolution in 1905 that took power away from the Tsar that created a uh, uh a duma russia's first uh legislative uh assembly and so that that was a problem that kind of started in 1905. It didn't get solved. It built up. And uh, then Russia committed itself to the First World War uh, to uh, helping its allies. And it did help its allies. Had it not been for Russia, the Germans probably would have taken Paris in the first or second year of the war. But Russia threw its troops into the battle on the Eastern Front and uh, lost millions of men. And uh, to what gain? Nobody in Russia could really explain why they were there other than out of uh, loyalty to their allies. So uh, people were, you know, it was a brutal front. It was a horrible war. And the soldiers just decided they really didn't want to fight in this war anymore. So so that was another big factor in the revolution.
0: And meanwhile, uh, food was scarce. Was this the beginning of the anti-Tsar sentiment?
1: No, it had, it had started somewhat before that. But yes, when people are starving, obviously, they get uh, they blame the leadership, and that definitely contributed to it. I mean, the the winter of 1917, or 1916-17, was a very hard winter. Uh, there weren't uh, enough people, enough men to harvest the grain uh, because there were so many men away in the war. Uh, there weren't enough train cars to bring it to... Uh, to the cities, because uh, the trains were also being used uh, on the front, and there weren't uh, enough people to to deal with that, and it was a cold winter, so people started having real serious shortages uh, of bread, and, and it really started, the 1917 revolution really started as a revolution of women marching on bakeries, you know, and marching and just chanting, bread, bread.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Ian Frazier, Smithsonian contributor and author of Travels in Siberia. Today, we're talking about 100 years since the Russian Revolution in 1917. Uh, Ian wrote a piece in the Smithsonian, the cover story, Whatever Happened to the Russian Revolution? And we're learning about the lead up uh, to when the Bolsheviks Bolsheviks took over. Uh, I wanted to learn a little bit more, Ian, about uh, Tsar Nicholas II and the Romanov dynasty. What kind of leader was he?
1: Uh, He was out of his depth uh I think he was he was a devoted family man I guess you could say it's one of the best things you could say about him but he was just from from an earlier time uh, in terms of his own mindset he he was uh, a man of strong prejudices and he really didn't know what to do I mean he was very much dominated by his wife who was always telling him to be tougher and to stand up to these uh uh, movements that were building in the street and so on, and he he, he managed to combine ineffectuality with just sort of ill thought out brutality uh, that only drove people farther from uh, any kind of idea of of maintaining uh, uh, his his rule. I mean, he, he wanted to. He thought he was absolutely that he thought Russia absolutely needed a czar. That the czar was the same as Russia, almost, and and um, people gradually and then quickly uh, gave up on that idea. I mean, uh, he he really did just about as many mistakes as you can possibly imagine. I mean, it, he really didn't know what he was doing, and uh, uh, that very much contributed to the to the confusion and eventual violence of uh, the revolution.
0: So while this was all going on, uh, Vladimir Lenin was watching closely, but he was not in Russia at the time. Uh, tell us where he was and well, how.
1: This yeah, happened. he was, I mean, he was such a. Uh, uh, viewed as such a dangerous revolutionary, as indeed he was, that he was uh, basically uh, chased out of the country. He had already been uh, exiled to Siberia, uh, and then he, after that. Uh, <clears throat> was driven out and went to, uh, at the time of the revolution, he was actually living in Switzerland. Um, as were all the big time, very far, far left, I guess you could call them revolutionaries, uh, Leon Trotsky was living in the Bronx when the revolution started. Um, and had to and they all tried very quickly to get back because they didn't you know when the bread kind of uh, riots began, uh, and they saw, oh, this is going to be a major movement. The Bolsheviks, uh, who were not, for the most part, in Russia at the time, all tried to get back. And they did get back. Uh, they got back by later in the summer because the, it was the winter when things started to get bad. It was the summer, or it was the late spring and summer uh, when the revolutionaries came back because they, the first revolution of 1917, which occurred in February, resulted in pardons and in amnesty for revolutionaries. And they then they came back, and then things really started to cook.
0: And so before they returned in March of that year, uh, Nicholas II abdicated, and there was right. a provisional government.
1: That's right. He, he left. Uh, I mean, it, they, he was forced to abdicate, and uh, uh, he... Was then held under house arrest as he was for the rest of that year until, and, and the rest of the next year until he was killed. The you know, in 1918, he was killed along with all his family. But um, once he abdicated, uh, it was really basically chaos. Uh, you had uh, the Petrograd Soviet, which was a, a, a group, a, an accumulation of small groups that then became a great big group of uh, Workers, mutinying soldiers, uh, just ordinary people on the street. It was sort of a, a mob scene, but it had the power because the soldiers who had mutinied were part of the uh, Petrograd Soviet and they had guns because they had taken their guns from them. Mm-hmm. Well, when they mutinied, and so you had that, and then you had a provisional government, which was a more bourgeois government, which was trying to maintain, maybe move towards something like a constitutional democracy, but the provisional government didn't have any power, so you had this very weird period where you had kind of two ruling groups, one with the power but without really the executive ability to enforce the power or to do much with the power. And then you had a kind of more executive group, the provisional government, which couldn't really do anything because it didn't have any power, it didn't really have people behind it. So into that very vague, weird, shifting power scene, the Bolsheviks arrived and just drove through that to their own revolution in October.
0: Tell us about the meetings that happened uh, with Lenin, uh, where he had the votes to then overthrow the provisional government. How did that all transpire?
1: Well, uh, Lenin came back to Russia uh, on the uh, 16th of April. And this was a triumphant moment. And if you've ever seen like socialist realist paintings, it's his return to the Finland station. And he's giving a speech from an armored car. And people are, and in fact, it was a big spectacular event, uh, very unexpected by the Bolsheviks, that they would be welcomed so enthusiastically. Uh, He then tried twice. He tried in April and he tried in July to have a coup to take over the government. And both times he was thwarted. And the second time that he was thwarted, news came out that he had been receiving help from the German government. And in fact, he did receive Help from the German government, and they received tens of millions of marks. The Bolsheviks, uh, in order to destabilize Russia. I mean, he was basically a traitor to his country at uh, at the height of war, and so there was a little bit of danger there that he might even be uh, lynched at that point. So Lenin then left again and went back to Finland and sort of hid out there. And then he came once things got even shakier. He came back in later uh, later in the summer, and he was there all the way up until he suddenly pushed the coup through. And it was really Lenin himself. I mean, it was uh, just the way I don't think we'd have a United States of America without George Washington. Uh, You wouldn't have had a Soviet Union without uh, V.I. Lenin. So he came back and uh, persuaded the other Bolsheviks that this was the time to strike, Uh, in October. And so they decided that he was right. They voted, the uh, central committee of the party voted in his favor, and they went ahead and moved uh, on uh, October 25th, which uh, by the old calendar, new calendar, that's November 7th. So the, the, the actual day of the coup was November 7th.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our guest today is Ian Frazier, a Smithsonian contributor. His story in the October issue, Whatever Happened to the Russian Revolution, 100 years uh, since that time. And we're learning more about the lead-up uh, to that revolution, as well as uh, what happened after with Ian. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion about the revolution and find out how the centennial is being viewed in modern-day Russia under the leadership of Vladimir Putin. We'll also learn about a village in southwest Connecticut where Russians settled after fleeing communist rule. Are you a descendant of Russian immigrants? Join the conversation. 860 275 7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Today we're talking about the Russian Revolution in 1917. With us by phone is Ian Frazier, Smithsonian contributor and author of Travels in Siberia. We were learning about the lead-up to uh, when the Bolsheviks took over in October of 1917. Uh, Ian, uh, they overthrew the government, and then what happened to the Romanov family?
1: Well, the Romanov family was under house arrest at Tsarskoye solo which was the Tsar's village. It was the place where they had their... It was kind of like their summer house or something for the, for the Romanovs. Uh, and so they were held there for a while. And then the uh, provisional government, uh, Alexander Kerensky, who was the head of the provisional government, actually was rather sympathetic to the Romanovs and was afraid that they were in danger in uh, the, uh, the Petrograd-Leningrad area. And uh, um, so he decided that they should be shipped east, always a strategy of Russians, uh, when danger comes up to get farther back into their country. And so he shipped them out when they ended up in, uh, Ekaterinburg in the Ural mountains, which is about 1200 miles from Petersburg, uh, Leningrad. And so they were out there and they were then held there for, uh, um, months, many months out there. And so, uh, Once the Bolsheviks took over, uh, a civil war broke out, and there were armies of white soldiers that is, soldiers who were trying to uh, get rid of the Bolsheviks and defeat them uh, and defeat the Red Army. And as the white army uh, units came closer to uh, Ekaterinburg, uh, Lenin decided that the Tsar was too much of a danger as a possible standard that they could rally around. So he ordered the czar's murder in July of uh, 1918.
0: Uh, in your uh, piece for the Smithsonian, Whatever Happened to the r- Russian Revolution, uh, you travel around uh, two specific uh, towns and sites, including uh, where the the family uh, was murdered. Tell us about what it looks like today, Ian.
1: Well, it's it was amazing to me because I had driven across Siberia for that book, Travels in Siberia, And when I was in Ekaterinburg uh, the first time, I went to the site where they had been killed, and it was a mansion. Uh, They were staying in this mansion in uh, Ekaterinburg, and the mansion had been torn down. So there was nothing there, which is this blank lot. It was just like gravel and bulldozered and nothing. And when I went back in March of this year, uh, there is a five-story church, the Church on the Blood, it's called, a big and quite... I think, beautiful uh, Russian Orthodox Church on the site of this mansion. And it's a very elaborate church with many gold domes. If you know what Russian churches look like, you can picture it, maybe. But it was as if a genie had just suddenly brought this church, because the last thing I remember, this was just an empty lot. And so they have really almost made a cult of Nicholas. And Nicholas and his family are all saints now of the Orthodox Church. They were sanctified, I think, in the uh, 90s, um, so it was a bit, you know, it's really a dramatic change, because when they, when they wanted to get rid of the czar back 100 years ago, people sort of didn't really seem to care very much. I mean, most people looked the other way when the czar was killed, and uh, uh, now all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but in the last decades, he has become a saint and an object of veneration.
0: So the Soviet Union was created in later in 1922. How was how would, how did life change for the people there?
1: Well, from people I've talked to, you know, there were uh, just very um, specific changes. Like your apartment would become a communal apartment, and uh, you know, if you had a nice apartment with five rooms in Moscow, well, you would find out you're living in one room in Moscow, and you have people living in in other uh, parts of your uh, apartment, and, and your building has now got five times as many people in it. I mean just for one specific kind of change, but um, early on the way things changed was that there you know there was a civil war. so a lot of people were often fighting in the Civil War. Uh, people would end up in the Red Army and fight all over. There were battles all over Russia. Uh, and it didn't really end until uh, the early 20s finally, uh the the country was consolidated under Soviet rule. So um uh you know that that was a change. I mean it was a change that they got out of the war, which was an enormous change. They were no longer fighting. They had given up uh all kinds of their own territory to the Germans in the uh Treaty of Brest Litovsk and then the Germans lost. So they got all that treat all that land back everything they'd conceded to the Germans, they got back and they hadn't continued to fight, but they benefited by the end of the war. So at that point, Lenin looked like a genius, because at first the treaty looked very, very bad for Russia, but it ended up with them actually increasing the size of their their country. So, um, uh, you know, it was a a huge, enormous change. This was modernism just suddenly everywhere in Russia or, you know, in all kinds of parts of Russia and very much in the cities. It, It changed... It changed everything. It changed art. It changed music. It changed. Uh, it changed how the people saw themselves. It was. A, it was just an enormous change.
0: Today, we're talking about the Russian Revolution on where we live. It's been 100 years since the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Lenin in 1917 overthrew Tsar Nicholas II. This led to Russia being communist for much of the 20th century. Not all Russians were sympathetic to the Bolsheviks cause. Many fled communist rule and settled around the globe, including here in Connecticut. To tell us more, we're joined now by Andre Harwell, a Connecticut resident. He's second generation Russian-American. Andre, welcome to the show.
2: Great. Thank, thank you for having me, Lucy.
0: Tell us about your personal connection to the revolution, Andre.
2: Well, my uh, my grandfather was a white Russian. He was uh, on the losing side of that war that uh, we were just talking about. Um, he was born in 1892 in Voronezh, which was a city close to Moscow, and enlisted in the, in the Russian military in 1914 and went off on his way to the Western Front to fight um, where he got his first military decorations. Um, He came back to St. Petersburg and and, uh, went to officer's finishing school, and he became an officer in the military just in time for the revolution and joined the White Guard and fought in the Civil War until 1920, um, when he was evacuated from Novodosisk in the south um, to Serbia, where he spent the time between the wars um, in Yugoslavia, eventually making his way to Berlin. Uh, where he met my grandmother and then ultimately coming to Ohio and then New York, where he settled until he died in 1969.
0: Mm. Um, As you were growing up, what did your parents tell you about uh, the revolution?
2: Well, it was was interesting for me because I I actually grew up in East Tennessee, really in isolation from, um, from any other Russians of the white Russian colony, um, but my grandmother lived in New York, and you know we would go to her house, and she had a, a, a painting of Tsar Nicholas II on the wall, and there was a lot of talk always about um, about the revolution, about being Russian. My grandparents um, spoke Russian. My mother spoke Russian and, and taught Russian in universities, um, and I was always um, very curious about. How to contextualize this information? I also grew up in the Russian Orthodox Church, specifically the one in New York, which was a church um, that had a, a split from the main church in Moscow. They they were a church in exile. They felt that the the um, the dogma of the church was being polluted by Stalin, who had some control over the Metropolitan in Moscow. And they therefore split off and formed a church called the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, which first formed in Europe and then eventually in New York. And in the church services, we would attend, uh, let's say on Easter, there was always a part where they would bless the Tsar, which I think is really fascinating. And that church didn't actually um, find itself in communication with Moscow again until about um, 10 or 15 years ago.
0: You mentioned the the white Russian community in New York. Uh, how did some of them end up in Connecticut in this area uh, in the town of Southbury, a, a village called chiraivka I believe? Yeah, it's a really
2: interesting story. And, um, you know, just to contextualize this, this I started looking at Chirayvka, um about 15 years ago when I was a graduate. Oh, it
0: looks like we lost. Uh, we Hello, are you still there? Oh, okay. Well, hopefully, we can get him to call, uh, Andre to call back. I'll go back to Ian Frazier again, the Smithsonian contributor uh, who has written about the Russian Revolution in the October issue. Uh, We heard um, Andre talking about this white Russian community. Uh, I'm curious, he mentioned Stalin, so let's back up a little and talk about um, um, what happened to Vladimir Lenin that allowed Stalin to then uh, enter into power, Ian.
1: Well, Lenin. uh I think went through quite a lot. Believe it or not, it was hard on Lenin doing all of the, you know, the revolution. I mean, that was what his wife said. Um, uh, she said that he had just, you know, thrown himself into it so much that it, it damaged his health. So Lenin uh, became ill uh, in the twenties, uh, and I think he died in twenty-four. And uh, when he died, uh, by that time Stalin had really established himself. Um, this was a situation in which power was uh, centralized, and uh, Stalin was someone very skilled at uh, getting power and uh, increasing his power. So that by the time Lenin died, uh, Stalin was firmly in power, and he remained in power until he died in uh, 1953 or 54. Uh, Stalin was, uh, you know, the uh, absolute dictator, and. Um, and that was a weakness. I mean, that was the problem with Bolshevism, and that was the problem with the Communist Party, was that it, it was a place where power was increasingly, I mean, it was just centralized and centralized and centralized. Even in Marxism, the idea is there will just be a few enlightened people that will be able to, you know, um, uh, direct the revolution and, and direct the, the what happens after the revolution, the revolution. The, uh, you know the socialist state and so Stalin was at the center of that and Lenin was dead but he was still visible because he was his body was preserved and put in his tomb in Red Square and if you wanted to go see Lenin who was almost like the deity the secular deity of socialism and of of the Soviet Union you could go and see him and you can I believe it's even possible still to see him today mm.
0: Have you gone there?
1: Yes, I did. (laughs) When I first went in 93, I stood in line, and I went and looked at Lennon. And it really was amazing. It was amazing to see uh, Lennon and then read about Lennon, because when I would read a description, for example, the great American writer, John Reed, wrote what Lennon looked like, and I could say, yeah, you're right, that is what he looked like, because I saw him. You know, it's amazing. It was just to, to go in, and there's, there's, the guy that did all this, Lenin preserved in his tomb, and it was a uh just such a bizarre thing i mean it, it, very you know in america we're we 're founded on an idea uh mm-hmm. but but the, the Russia is a much more animist country it much more it 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 believes in like physical uh, the the conju- the conjunction of physical and spiritual things and this this mummy, this body was actually like, this is Russia almost, you know, this is the Soviet Union. Look, here he is in his suit lying here. It was mm-hmm. quite strange.
0: I think our other guest is back with us, Andre Harwell, a Connecticut resident, second generation Russian American. Andre, can you hear me?
2: Yes, I can hear you now. Sorry about that. Oh, uh,
0: no problem. So we were talking about uh, this this village in Southbury known as Churaivka and how you learned about it. So tell us again.
2: Yeah, so um, I was a graduate student at Yale, and I became very interested in looking at the colonies of the first wave of Russian émigrés, of which my family were part. Um, you know, these were all of the white Russians who had left through um, through the South uh, and through Vladivostok, and first they made stopovers in places like Shanghai and Harbin. Some of them went to Paris, some went to Yugoslavia, uh, some to Berlin, and then eventually, uh, Africa, Argentina, South America. So they, this was really a worldwide diaspora. But Chidaevka was a little bit different than some of those other communities. It was not necessarily imagined as um, uh, a kind of natural agglomeration of, um, of people in the diaspora at the beginning. The story really begins with Leo Tolstoy's son, Ilya, who was also an author like his father, who came to New York in 1917. He was probably one of the very first refugees arriving in New York. And as an author, he worked with um, a translator who lived in Southbury, Connecticut, the sort of suburb of Waterbury. And the story goes that um, Tolstoy was one day driving along a country road on his way to see the translator and pulled over and took a walk through the woods. And at the time, the woods were filled with birch trees, which of course are part of the imagery of old Russia. And he imagined himself um, back in Rushna- Russia at Yasnaya Polyana, which was his father's hereditary estate, uh, where War and Peace and Anna Karenina had been written. And so he decided to, to buy an acre of land there and build a house. And uh, a year or two later, he bought another hundred acres from a local farmer named E.G. Scoville. Um, so that's how it began. And he would have these kind of gathering soirees of uh, cultural producers at his cabin. Um, and one one year in 1924, um, a guy named Gregory Gravenchikoff showed up on his doorstep. This this was a Siberian author um, who had grown up in the Altai Mountains and had been invited to New York um, to teach in something called the Master Institute for United Arts, an organization that the painter Nicholas Rorick had established to try to teach this kind of um new theophilosophical concept that he was coming up with that had to do with uh, trying to provide peace through cultural production. Warwick uh, had just arrived in New York, and he decided that what he really wanted to do was to try to produce a cultural colony in exile. Um, within the Russia abroad community, the white Russians felt that it was really important to try to maintain um, the traditions of cultural production because they felt that Stalin back in Russia was really polluting cultural production by controlling things just the same way that the church was being controlled. Um, So on this visit, he decided that Chidaevka, which of course didn't have that name yet, would be the perfect place for him to start this colony. So he bought uh, much of Tolstoy's land with the financial backing of Igor Sikorsky, who was also a member of this diaspora. Sikorsky, of course, would um, subsequently invent the helicopter and his factory was in Stratford, Connecticut. Um, and the next year bought another 100 acres from E.G. Scoville to establish um, this sort of cultural colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and he Andre- laid out 125 lots and uh, he used his friend, Duna Jeff, um, to lay out those lots and eventually established a printing house in his own mm-hmm. um, garage there, which was supposed to produce cultural documents um, and literature related to Russia.
0: Can you describe uh, what the village looked like and what's left today?
2: Sure. So by the 30s, um, by 28, actually, there were only eight eight houses that were built there. And during that early time, a lot of the kind of um, most important cultural producers uh, in exile did come to visit there. Those were people like Michael Chekhov, Um, who was the actor, Michael Fokine, the ballet dancer and choreographer, who was known as the father of modern dance, Sergei Rachmaninoff, um, the famous composer and pianist, um, and Sikorsky, and of course Rorick. Um, But by 28 or 29, there were only eight houses there, and the Depression hit, and really building stopped. Um, But during that time, um, Rorick decided to build what was the most visible element of the village, and it's the thing that you first see when you arrive there. So coming off of the State Road, you sort of come to an intersection of three streets, and down and to the left is this chapel, the Chapel of St. Sergius. Um, the chapel is really interesting. It was built to a design um, of a painting that Rorick had done while he was traveling in the Altai Mountains, which is where um, Grubenshikov had grown up, and it depicts St. Sergius as the builder. So he's standing in the woods and he has a hatchet and he's chopping the branch off of a tree and in the background is this small chapel it's a kind of cubic building with a steep roof and an onion dome and a three-bar cross and the chapel um, in Shadayevka is almost identical except rather than being rendered in clapboards, it's rendered in field stone which was obviously foraged around the site and above the door um, is a, a copy of a famous, famous painting, The Trinity, by Andrei Rubyov, which was um, a painting that was actually painted in the monastery that Sergius founded in Moscow, and they, they apparently were friends. So Sergius has a lot of different meanings. Um, he was the patron saint of Russia for many years, and the story goes that he told Dmitry Donskoy, this was in the 14th century, um, that he should uh, he should take off the, the Tartar yoke. The Mongols then controlled Russia and that he should try to consolidate Ru- um, the lands around Moscow into a united nation. And with this blessing, Donskoy went out and he beat the Mongols. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of modern founding story of, of Russia as a nation. Um, but the other part of it, which I think is probably more pertinent, is that um, Sergius went out into the woods and he wanted to commune with nature in order to, you know, find himself close to God. And a group of, of, uh, of hermits went with him out into the woods. And I think Grebenchikoff in some ways liked that story because he liked to imagine himself going off into the woods mm. and creating this hermetic colony where cultural production could happen. Um, sort of, uh, you know, outside, with, away from the pollution of the cities, and away from the kind of politics of the world.
0: You've been listening to Andre Harwell, a Connecticut resident, second-generation Russian American. Tell us about the history of Drivka uh, This was a village in the near the town, in the town of Southbury. I wanted to take a call now as we talk about uh, 100 years since the r- Russian Revolution. Uh, Gregory is calling from Winstead. Gregory, go ahead with your question.
1: Hi, uh, I'm glad Andre's on the phone, Lucy. Um, I'm just wondering, Andre, what do you think about the religious aspects of the Russian Revolution, given that so many of the top Bolsheviks were Ashkenazi Jews? Could it be reviewed as like uh,
3: a—and also the amount of people who were killed in the Revolution? I'm just wondering your thoughts on that, Andre. Uh,
2: You know, I'm not sure I have a really good uh, answer for that. Um, uh, You know, I know the white Russians were primarily Russian Orthodox, and Orthodoxy was, of course, the, the primary religion of Russia at the time. The Tsar, as a monarch, was all, almost a deity within the religion. Um, but I'm I'm not certain. I'm not a historian of, of the revolution, maybe.
1: Mm.
0: Well, let's go to Ian Fraser, who's a Smithsonian contributor, author of Travels in Siberia. Ian, do you have an answer for our, our caller about the influence of the Ashkenazi Jews?
1: Um, I had no idea they were Ashkenazi Jews. Mm. I mean, I... Uh, I knew that uh many of the Bolsheviks were Jews, and I know that of course they were all very anti religious but I, I didn't know uh, apparently there's a book out that talks about Bolshevism as a religious cult as almost like a, an op- apocalyptic cult but um uh and and apparently the book explains the later deaths as uh you know the failure um of this uh... Um, uh... apocalyptic cult to produce what it had said it would do i mean it was supposedly there was going to be world revolution and uh... it was uh... you know like a utopia was was uh, just over the horizon and when that didn't happen you know somebody had to pay and so there were all these uh... millions and millions of deaths but uh... i i didn't realize that they had that uh that in common. I, I, I had never heard that.
0: Unfortunately, we only have a, a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, Ian, uh, before we run out of time, because we're talking about 100 years since the Russian Revolution, how is this centennial being viewed in Russia today, if at all?
1: Well, it's not a, a, a national holiday as it was for the uh, during Soviet times. So it's going to be more like, um, it's called National Unity Day. It actually celebrates a very different holiday that goes all the way back to the seventeenth century uh, so it's um, basically it's being uh, it 's not being celebrated it 's something people are talking about and thinking about but uh if you go back fifty years at the half centennial it was a huge deal and it wasn 't just a huge deal in Russia it was all over the world i mean it's certainly in America you know time life uh newsweek nbc did a special on it it was part of everybody's daily life practically in in nineteen sixty-seven and nobody back then would have ever imagined that uh... in another fifty years it would go by with without any uh... without any celebration it would be something to discuss and that's what it is in russia i think there are lectures and there are you know uh... Um, publications and you can go online and see what happened every day in nineteen seventeen there's a website where you can do that but they're not, they're not it's not a celebration and it was a huge celebration uh, when the Soviet Union still existed
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Ian Frazier, Smithsonian contributor and author of Travels in Siberia. If you have a chance, uh, pick up the Smithsonian October issue. Uh, This is a really fascinating uh, in-depth article that Ian has written for the Smithsonian on whatever happened to the Russian Revolution with beautiful photographs as well. Thank you, Ian, so much for your time. We appreciate it.
1: Oh, I was happy to do it.
0: Also, Andre Harwell, Connecticut resident. He's second generation Russian-American.
2: Absolutely. So happy to be with you today.
0: After the break, we'll learn how Africans and blacks from America were attracted by the promises Bolsheviks made, including the promise of a nation where everyone would be treated equally. You can also join the conversation at 860 275 7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanshul. Russia is our focus today on the show. Our next guest is Terrell Germain Starr, senior reporter at The Root. His recent piece is pegged to the centennial of the Bolshevik Revolution and how the former Soviet Union attempted to form a solidarity with blacks. Terrell joins us by phone now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, we only have a few minutes, but I'm curious about when your interest in Russia began, Terrell.
3: Absolutely. Uh, summer of 2001, I traveled to uh, Russia, particularly a region uh, about six hours away out of St. Petersburg, Petersburg, excuse me, well, a village. It was called Skiastroya, uh, and I was uh, volunteering an orphanage for three months, and then uh, when I went out traveling to Moscow, St. Petersburg, saw a lot of African people walking around made me curious, and I was wondering how did they get there, and so I began reading books. One book turned to a dozen did Peace Corps, got a master's degree in Russian, and a few other degrees focusing on the region, and here I
0: am. Uh, in your piece, you write, the Kremlin was eager to exploit Western imperialism in Africa and the U.S., where colonization and Jim Crow were the rules of the land. Tell us about the tactics used, and was the USSR successful?
3: Well, uh, I think that at the time of the, of the revolution, uh, there was a lot of idealism, a lot of, of political aspirations when the Bolsheviks, when, when the Bolshevik revolution took place. And we can have conversations about whether or not they were sincere in their efforts to make a society, create a society that was equal for all ethnicities. Um, I think there's a compelling argument to say, yes, they were. You know, and so with black people, that was a really keen, very shrewd approach because if you could... Turn the continent of Africa uh, Soviet Red per se. Then that would be a huge geopolitical coup. Uh, particularly, it would take a shot at uh, American imperialism, uh, uh, European colonialism, and so you could unite a whole continent of people against a dominating uh, a dominating continent, which you know, which is Europe at the time. As far as whether or not they were successful. I, my argument is no, and the reason being is because while there are certain uh, key leadership, uh, key leadership in the Bolshevik Revolution that was sincere about um, incorporating black people into their society, I don't believe most of them were. At the end of the day, their uh, their their approach to dealing with um, you know in, in dealing with um, European and American colonialism and imperialism had to be based on a notion that the Russians themselves could overcome their own form of whiteness. And they were never, never able to do that simply because they were never able to do that with Ukrainians, with Chechens, with Central Asian peoples. So if they can do that with their own, with their own communities of people, how could they extend a hand of equality towards foreign black peoples from the continent of Africa and the, uh, in the United States? Hmm.
0: You write that um, at the time uh, when certain uh, writers and performers were being embraced by the USSR, uh, some of them saw through the propaganda, including Langston Hughes, uh, but others still stayed there because to them it was still a refuge from the severe racism and anti-blackness back at home. Talk us through that, Trevor.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the thing about Langston Hughes, he was a very well, well very well-read uh, a writer uh, of the region, and so he knew. He couldn't be sold, uh, you know, any false goods. He knew what was going on. But it's one of those things where, as black people, regardless of what period that we're living in, we're always trying to seek some place on Earth where we can be free. And any country that even flirts with the idea that that's possible, we're going to investigate it. And so when I write these critiques of the Soviet Union, they're not critiques of the black people who actually sought uh, refuge in the Soviet Union for better opportunities. In reality, there were people who did find great opportunity in the USSR, particularly black people from historically black colleges and universities who were agricultural specialists, uh, who worked as engineers. So there was one aspect of their sojourn that was um, beneficial to them because during the 20s and 30s, obviously, there weren't too many uh, companies, organizations that were willing to give jobs of that caliber to black people, even though... Historically black colleges at the time were definitely educating people to fill those roles in the United States. Now, when you talk about whether or not, you know, one of the downsides was that the Soviet Union was a was a, essentially a police state, and so the same issues, the same challenges of authoritarianism that the Soviet citizens had to endure, um, black people were a part of that. And so if you think about the purges, for example, uh, there were some, you know, there, there were some... Um, accounts of black people being victims of Stalin's purges, because when he went after people, um, you know, whether it be Jewish people, Polish people, um, intellectuals, et cetera, black people who traveled to the USSR were not excluded from that. So it was often a double-edged sword, but we really did not begin to see that until we really saw it come to form during the 60s. As I wrote in my article, there were students who consistently complained about racism and being closed out of society. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, the Soviet Union used uh, these people as propaganda tools. And even though they themselves were not, uh, they found benefits in USSR as far as education, the Soviet Union had a double uh, agenda for them. And so for me, uh, when a Soviet, when a student complained about racism and the Soviet authorities kind of brushed you to the side, it kind of lets you know they weren't serious about integrating people into the cultures in, in, in the first place.
0: Then fast forward to 2016, where we're seeing uh, Russian operatives uh, exploiting uh, our race relations in this country for the benefit of of their own policy objectives.
3: Absolutely. And this is a very old technique. The Soviets have been doing this uh, since the 20s, in fact. So at one, one point in my article, focuses on the fact that the Well, going back to the 20s, when I cited Raquel Green's work where she talks about the racism in children's books, uh, the Russians had a keen understanding of imagery, uh, particularly with black people, and how to weaponize it, how to use it to their advantage, uh, whether it comes down to recruiting black people uh, to the USSR, as well as creating um, intelligence um, tactics in order to... Exploit racism in, in the United States. We saw that come to form during the 1960s, uh, but now, so so it's a very so it's a very uh, they were, they've been doing it for a very long time. One thing I will say about the 2016 elections is that the Russians may have exploited racial strife in the United States, but they did not create it, and I think that's an important distinction to make at the end of the day, Russia did not uh, create a society in which, you know, many poor white people voted against their economic and their uh, social interests. So particularly with white women with 53%, I don't think that the Russians were able to do that. Uh, It was impossible. That's something that's very much homegrown. But as far as exploiting the racial strife, yes, definitely. But even at the moment, we don't know the extent to which, it was impactful how how fake news, how fake um, social media posts impacted people's voting decisions. That's research that's in progress. So I just want to be clear mm. about that distinction of the Soviet Union and now the uh, Russian Federation having uh, decades of experience in, in uh, exploiting racial strike. Because keep in mind, they did it in their own uh, sphere of influence, whether it be Ukraine, whether it be Georgia, whether it be the Baltic states. So they have that um, down pat in their own region. They just exported very similar tactics to the United States. But at the end of the day, it has to be something in your own country that they can exploit. Mm. Uh, otherwise, they don't have much leverage to uh, operate on.
0: Well, I want to thank Terrell Germain Starr, senior reporter at The Root. Uh, he's written a piece, The Bolshevik Revolution Took Place 100 Years Ago. What is its legacy with black people? It's an interesting read. Thank you, Terrell, for your time. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WMPR intern Ashley Taylor. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can check out more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.